thanks for connecting with our online content at Holy Trinity Church in Richmond. We really hope that what we share with you will be a blessing and will help you to continue to grow in your knowledge and love of God. today comes from Luke chapter 9 verse 51 to Luke chapter 10 verse 24 and you can find it on page 1052 in your pew Bibles. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading to Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there eating and drinking whatever they give you for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal those who are ill and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, It will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. But whoever rejects me, 
rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And he replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, Jesus, full of the joy through, joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father, but no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. This is the word of the Lord. My wife, Karen, has a lovely picture of the Oxford skyline, which is a moment from our time in the city of dreaming spires. And when we got back to New Zealand, it needed reframing. And it was amazing as we looked at this picture, the difference that the different types of frames made. In the framing shop, different frames changed what we saw in the picture, what was highlighted for us. A darker frame pulled out the sky and you could see more of the blues and more of the purples. The gold frame that Karen finally settled on for this picture, settled there, it shifts the focus onto the greens of the trees which pop out when you have that gold frame around it from in between the towering spires of Oxford. Those different frames helped us to see different details in the picture. That's a thought that we are going to carry through in the message this morning. Not sure if you remember back to October when we left Luke's gospel, maybe you weren't with us at all, but we finished in the same place that we've picked up this morning, in chapter 9, verse 51. And we hear that verse again because it's a hinging verse in Luke's gospel. It's a major turning point for what Jesus is doing. After the initial phase of his public ministry, Jesus is now shifting gear and changing directions. He's holding up a different frame for his ministry. The time is coming, we're told, where his earthly ministry will come to an end. The time is coming where he'll stop speaking about the kingdom of God here on earth, and he'll start ushering it in from his throne at the right hand of the Father in heaven. To that end, verse 51 tells us of chapter 9, that he's resolutely set his eyes on Jerusalem and everything that awaits him there. That is where Jesus is going. We sang about it today in the song Jerusalem, didn't we? We know what he's going to face there. We sang, see him in Jerusalem, walking where the crowds are. Once these streets had sung to him, but now they cry for murder. He knows where he's going and what that end is going to be. The Lord Jesus, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, for the sake of salvation, for the sake of truly bringing freedom for the oppressed, of sight for the blind, of freedom for those in captivity, 
those prisoners that are in bondage to sin, has unwaveringly started the slow death march towards the cross in Jerusalem. It's through his sacrificial death in the place of any who believe on him that he will ensure his kingdom comes. That is the way that God's people will be regathered again so that they can dwell in his place under his blessing. But Jesus isn't there yet. It's where he's going, but he still has work to do on the way. He continues to gather followers to himself who will believe in him and reframe their expectations of what discipleship means. As he does that, he gives instructions about people going out and sharing the good news of the kingdom. He does that under the sovereignty of God, and we're going to look at that in verses 1 to 16. And then after that, as the 72 come back back to him, he reframes what ministry success really looks like in verses 17 to 24. This morning, we're going to explore those two big movements in the text, and as we do that, we'll also draw really briefly on the two preceding encounters that Jesus has just had, one in a Samaritan village where he's been rejected, and one where his disciples are called to prioritize kingdom proclamation above everything else. There's a bit in there. We're going to need God's help. Why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for Luke and his gospel. We thank you for the wonderful encouragement that it is for us. We pray this morning that you would help us to reframe how we think we're meant to live and act as your followers, as disciples, and that you would help by the power of your spirit us to start to look for ministry excess, success in the way that is in line with your word. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Well, he's got his face set resolutely towards Jerusalem, and so he begins to prepare his followers for the time that is going to come when he is no longer here on earth doing ministry in their midst any longer. People are hearing the good news of the gospel, and they're responding We know that because the number of disciples is continuing to grow. He started with 12, and now he's about to send out 72. These are 72 committed gospel workers that are near to Jesus. And as he gives them their marching orders, he points them to their heavenly Father as the source of their success. The task before them is huge as they go out to share the gospel. Their mandate of gospel proclamation probably seems as overwhelming as ours does today. And so Jesus calls them to prayerful dependence on God first and foremost. He says, pray for workers for the harvest. As he's sending people to go out and prepare the way, he points them to God's sovereignty. Even as you go, he says, ask God to raise up the people required to reach every corner of this world with the good news of Jesus. It's a mandate for us, isn't it, to continue to do that. Now, some of us might not be up to doing much going, maybe through disability or age, limited mobility. Those sort of challenges come in life, don't they? But we know that there is still a desperate need for people to be going, to be proclaiming the good news of Jesus. We might not all be able to go, but we can certainly all pray. We can all actively engage in the ministry of Jesus, at least in this way, which is the first way that he asks us to. This is not the leftovers for those who can't do the proper job. This is the first part of the job that we're called to in kingdom work, is this kind of prayer. If God answered, 
all of your prayers over the last month, if God granted everything that you'd asked him for, every supplication, how many new workers for the gospel would be raised up today if God answered that prayer? What ministries in the life of this church and mission organizations would have new workers as a result of your prayers? It's a convicting question, isn't it? When I announced that we had a couple of student ministers joining our team this year, someone the very same day came and said to me, I've been praying that God would bring us more leaders to share in the ministry of church. That was a phenomenal encouragement. I was so thrilled to hear that expression of faithfulness and then to see how God was answering it. Most of us are pretty good at spotting gaps in ministry, aren't we? We know where the shortfalls are. We probably talk to our friends about them in the church community. There's a long list of them on my desk, and sometimes it genuinely has me living in despair. There is so much that needs our attention and time for the sake and spread of the gospel, isn't there? And it never seems like there are enough people to do it. Church, when you spot those gaps, would you commit to praying about them? When you see those shortfalls and the lack of personnel, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. These disciples who are being sent out, they're reliant on God for more workers, and so are we. And they will be reliant on God for their safety. Jesus tells them he's sending them out like lambs among wolves in verse 3. Did you spot it? There's no question that they're going to be working in a hostile environment, is there? They're going to be vulnerable. They're going to be exposing themselves to ridicule and rejection. Proclaiming the message of Jesus comes with very real risks, doesn't it? Not much has changed since the disciples went out. When we're brave enough to share something of Jesus' message, when we live and share the good news of Jesus, when we say and show that the kingdom of God has come near, how it's at work, maybe in the village that we live in or a sports group or with colleagues in our workplace, then we open ourselves up to being reviled and mocked, don't we? We open ourselves up to being the one who's uninvited from the social gatherings or the one who's talked about in the corner as a bit odd. Jesus sends his followers out into dangerous territory, but they're not alone. They're to depend on him for protection as much as for him to send workers, and so are we. We see as well that they're meant to work with those who are open, who receive the message with peace, verse 5 tells us. Not moving from place to place, but settling in one home. Here is a wonderful model of the slow graft of ministry and evangelism in relationship. Jesus isn't sending them out with some kind of flash-in-the-pan, high-impact ministry. He's asking them to do the long, slow work of building relationships, of getting to know people, of creating a connection, of doing life together, of asking questions and being asked questions. He's talking about staying in one household with those people who want to hear, where there is deep relationship built. And he says, where healing is offered. What does that look like for us? We're in relationship with people who don't know Jesus. How do we bring healing to them? Well, we give caring help, don't we, when the need is there. We offer loving support. 
we step up with sacrificial friendship. And as the kingdom is proclaimed, we talk about our faith in Jesus. We pray with those people that we're connected to or let them know that we're praying to them. We are brave and we offer to open the Bible with people when we've had that time to answer their deepest needs. In all of this, Jesus reframes the expectations for those who want to serve him, for those who want to be his disciples to follow him. This is not a half-hearted kind of lumping along discipleship, is it? This isn't a discipleship which lasts for an hour and a half on a Sunday. This is 24-7 following Jesus closely. He's reframed what it means to be a follower of his. He's outlined the cost. He's talked about the danger. He's talked about the need to bring both healing and proclamation together, letting people know that the kingdom of God has drawn near. And as they return... From this time of ministry, he reframes their expectations about what it means to be a successful follower. At the end of their time of ministry, they might have thought they've really made it, that they've grasped it, that they're on the up and up, that people are responding, that they're having an impact, that things are happening in God's kingdom. These are the kind of people who are prepared to carry and bear the cost of following Jesus. They've been on a mission with nowhere to lay their heads. Did you notice that? They've put the kingdom of God first before family obligation, going out to strangers. Did you notice that? They were people who were clearly convinced of who Jesus was. They were people who were prepared to look forward to the future, not back to the plow behind them. They are people who were trusting in God's provision, staying where they would be welcomed with these people of peace. They have healed people. They have proclaimed the coming kingdom. They've handled the inevitable rejection which will come. That Jesus and his message received in Samaria and Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, and they've handled it with grace. They've accepted that a time of judgment will come for all who reject Jesus and his message. Verse 16 was their stark reminder, wasn't it? Jesus will reject those who reject him. But they haven't. They've trusted him. And trusting in him, they've been able to go, and they've been able to leave that judgment to Jesus in his good timing. Their ministry has been a success. It's helped to reinforce the character and the priorities and the trust which characterize the faithful disciple. And they've seen such ministry success that they come back to Jesus and they're bursting to report what has been happening. In verse 17, it tells us what the source of their excitement was. They have seen God powerfully at work, overcoming the spiritual forces of demons which rebel against him. And they are amazed because they've been able to cast those demons out with real power and authority. They've borne the cost of following Jesus. And now they've seen spiritual forces being conquered. They have seen the kingdom of God breaking into the world. But Jesus reframes their expectations of ministry success. His response had to leave them feeling flat as he reframed what ministry success really looked like. 
And when you read his response, and I'm going to apologize in advance because this is probably going to be an earworm now that gets stuck with you all day, but it reads a bit like a Shania Twain song. I don't think anybody's ever said that about the Bible before. I certainly haven't. I could be struck down for that. Okay, so you cast out demons. That don't impress me much is where he lands. I saw Satan fall like heaven from lightning. This isn't one-upmanship from Jesus. It's a relocating of what they should be thrilled about in terms of his kingdom. Jesus' joy, and it's explained to us here, is a different kind of joy to the joy that the disciples come back with. His joy is a joy which comes from the Holy Spirit, and it isn't located in power to subdue the enemy. His joy is that the lowly ones, the little ones, the weak, the foolish, are grasping who he is for the very first time. His joy is in their blossoming salvation. As a result of his heavenly Father's kindness and mercy, he is honoring his age-old promises to Abraham. He is crediting their faith to them as righteousness. His spirit-driven joy is that people are being saved by grace through faith, that people are being saved by God's sovereign design, and that God has revealed that to the weak and the lowly. Babies is the word that is used here. They are babies in the faith. A disciple of Jesus's overwhelming joy should be in those who are, because of their sacrificial ministry, having their names written in heaven, Jesus tells us. Our overarching joy should not be in what we conquer, but in seeing people come to know the Lord Jesus, in seeing people trust him so that they will be justified on the day of his return, so that the one who has been given all things by his heavenly Father will continue to see his kingdom grow as he chooses to reveal himself to others. Where is our joy in ministry success? Church, that is a question that no senior minister wants directed at them, let me tell you. Do I find my joy in the praise of people who said, well done, that was a lovely service? Do I find my joy in balancing the budget for another year? Do I find my joy in meeting key performance indicators, putting in place strategic plans? There's an expectation that it can be very easy to find joy in that kind of thing because it's so measurable and easy to tick off. It can be very easy as a minister of the gospel to locate our joy and sense of ministry success in the numbers turning up on a Sunday or a younger-looking congregation, or another thing that we add as a ministry to our community. But Jesus asks me, and he asks you, to locate our joy, our overwhelming thankfulness and praise to God for the ministry success of people coming to know Jesus and entering his eternal kingdom, having their names written in heaven. That reframes the priorities and expectations for the 72, doesn't it? And it does the same for his disciples today. After he has done this public teaching, 
this reframing for the 72 of pointing them to their first important priority and the thing that they should have spirit-filled joy about. We get a glimpse into a private conversation between Jesus and the 12, the closest followers. It's a private conversation. And I think there's a bit of a hint that Jesus is gently reinforcing some teaching from earlier on where he rebuked them at the, at the end of chapter 9. In verses 51 to 56, there was an account there of Jesus and the disciples not being received well in a Samaritan town. As he's showing the disciples the overwhelming joy they should know and where its locus is for a second time, I think he's using some imagery from that earlier incident. Now, he's given them the big picture already. He's told them to rejoice that their names are written in heaven. And now, as the icing on the cake, he shows them how fortunate they are. They are blessed, verse 23, to see him. As they've walked and heard and observed the teaching of Jesus, they've been amazed at what they've seen. We know they have confidence in his power because when James and John encountered rejection in the Samaritan town, they wanted to call down Jesus' power to fry the Samaritans, to completely roast them. There's a link here to the prophets of old. It looks like they were keen to imitate Elijah, who called down fire from heaven to destroy the soldiers sent to him by King Ahaz of Israel. You can read about it in 2 Kings. Like Elijah, they wanted to see God bringing judgment on the people who rejected his message here and now. They wanted vengeance, and they wanted it swift and severe on the people who would turn their back on Jesus. Sometimes we want judgment here and now, don't we? To get even with the ones who have hurt us. Not just to shake the dust off our feet and leave it to Jesus in the future, but to make those who reject his way of living accountable here and now. We know it when we read news headlines of people doing horrific things and it rails inside us and we say we want justice, but I think it's probably vengeance a lot of the time. And yet Jesus, the one who has all authority to judge, he makes clear, given to him by his Father, the one with the right to judge, because he was without sin, says not yet to their judgment. The God of grace and mercy, the one who has all authority given to him by the Father to judge the living and the dead, reminds them that the prophets of old the greatest kings in Israel's history would have longed to see what they saw. They would have given their eye teeth to be a part of what was happening right then, the sun being revealed, salvation being proclaimed, the Messiah bringing about transformation of human hearts and drawing believers into himself so that they could be forgiven of their sins. Back in that Samaritan town, John and James thought that they could imitate the prophets, that they were about to move into a new age of God's judgment, that they were going to stand shoulder to shoulder with the greatest king Israel had ever seen. They thought they would see the judgment of Israel's enemies and those who rejected its king. But once again, Jesus reframes their expectations. He wants them to look on the Samaritans, those who might reject him, 
through a frame of his authority, his justice, and his good timing, not through a frame of personal prejudice dressed up as indignation for the sake of the kingdom. Again, he reframes the expectations of his followers. He does it in this private little moment that in his grace and mercy he's chosen to reveal to us through the scriptures. In this moment, he calls for them to place their whole lives at his feet, to hand over their motivations and their prejudices, and to be transformed and reframed in the light of the gospel. The prophets that they longed to imitate back in that Samaritan village, bringing judgment swift and sure, would have loved to see what the disciples were seeing right then and there. What's Jesus telling them? That theirs is the greatest privilege. It's the disciples who are seeing God most powerfully at work, not by miracles of fire coming from heaven, but by the miracle of the heart as Jesus opens the eyes of those who he chooses for redemption. Blessed are they who see him. Blessed are we who see him. Because in the pages of scripture, we do, don't we? We come face to face with Jesus there, revealed to us. As he holds up a frame of the scripture, he helps us to see him as he really is. God's Messiah the long-awaited king, the one who would redeem not just Israel, but bring blessing to the whole world through the forgiveness of sin. And he was right in front of them. And so they were blessed beyond the wildest dreams of the prophets and the kings of old. Church, this same Lord is right in front of us. What a blessing. He is reframing our expectations of life, of discipleship, of ministry success, calling his people to trust the sovereign God as we go, to pray for more workers of the harvest unswervingly, to go out and share the good news of, the Jesus, of Jesus sacrificially, and to believe so truly and so deeply with such conviction and commitment that we would bear the costs for the sake of the kingdom. Shall we pray that we would be those people? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're so thankful that you have reframed what it means to be a follower of yours. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to help us to rejoice that people have their names written in heaven with you. We pray that you would help us to go like lambs among wolves, praying for workers for the harvest, to do deep connection and deep relationship with people who don't yet know you, so that we might have opportunities to share the gospel so that they too would come into your kingdom. Lord, thank you for the wonderful blessing that when we open the scriptures, we see you face to face. Lord, it's mind-blowing to think that you would choose to reveal yourself to us like that. We pray that you would help us to see you, to be reframed by you, and to live in a way that is pleasing to you. We ask it in your name and for your glory. Amen.
If you'd like to connect with more of our online content at Holy Trinity in Richmond, you can do that by going to our YouTube page simply by searching for Richmond Anglican Aotearoa. You can also touch base with us online at our website or on Facebook by searching with those same words. Friends, we're so thankful that you've joined us online and that you're enjoying our content. We really do hope and pray that God is blessing you through it. If you've got any feedback, you can touch base with me, zane at richmondparish.nz. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.